We've been working our way through a series entitled, We Are the Church. And for the last several weeks, we've talked about the fact that we are God's people gathered together. That God is gathering for Himself a people out of the whole earth. And that by His Spirit, that we are unified together. And that we are a devoted people. People that are committed to the things of Christ. And this morning, we turn to generosity. And that God, in building His church, has gathered together generous people. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and part of chapter 9 this morning, looking at the idea of gospel-driven generosity. What drives generosity in our lives as a Christian? And we're going to look at this letter that Paul wrote to this church in Corinth, encouraging them concerning their giving. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we'll begin reading there in verse 1. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so we should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that... As a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. And then now over in chapter 9, starting in verse number 6, he continues on, he says, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that all, having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. 
you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Gospel-driven giving. You see, the power of the gospel produces glad and generous hearts. I want to tell you just a brief story about two men. One was named Russell Herman. He was a 67-year-old carpenter. He died in 1994, and when he died, he left a staggering set of requests in his will. He requested that $2 billion be left for the city of East St. Louis. A billion and a half dollars left for the state of Illinois. Two and a half billion dollars to the National Forest Service. And then, get this, six trillion dollars to the government to help pay off the national debt. There was only one problem. Though he was amazingly generous, Herman's only asset when he died was a 1983 Oldsmobile. You see, he made great pronouncements. He had a great plan, but he had nothing to give, So there was really no generosity involved. His pledges were meaningless. A few years before, another man, Robert Ardington, lived in a single room, cooked his own meals, shared his time with students and friends, helped those in need. But he gave tremendous amounts of money during his lifetime to Christian missions. When he died in 1900, his estate was worth Five million dollars, which he willed every penny to missions. After his death, some folks discovered a letter he had received from a missionary. It was among his belongings, and this is what he wrote in the letter. Were I in England again, I would gladly live in one room, make, my floor, make the floor my bed, a box my chair, another my table, rather than the heathen should perish for the lack of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Do you see in that one story the power of the good news of Jesus Christ and giving us generous hearts? That a man would live in a one-room apartment, would cook his own meals, would use a box for a chair, a box for a table, save everything he could, and then in the end give it all away. Why would he do that? Well, he realized that there was something far more worthwhile than his comfort, and he realized that everything he had was God's anyway. He realized that the power of the good news of the gospel brings about glad and generous hearts. Now, there's five things I want you to know this morning. We can move through them fairly quickly, so don't, um, don't um, freak out. Don't worry. We'll, we'll make good time. But the first thing I want you to know is that we give because God gave to us first. Why do we give? Because God gave to us first. If you look in all of history, there's never been anyone more generous than God himself. That God gives generously out of all he has so that we could be all that we are. And the very heart of the good news of the gospel is that what God gave 
His Son so that you and I could live. And not just live, but have abundant life on earth. And He made provision for the greatest problem we could have in our lives. You see, we have this sin problem, and by ourselves we can't do anything with it, but God gave His Son to make provision for our sin, and then we see Him each and every day in our lives continue to show Himself faithful as the provider. In the verses we read, it says that our Lord Jesus, though He was rich, became poor. Why? For our sake. It's God showing His graciousness toward us, that He willingly gave up the riches of everything in heaven to come to earth as a man to serve and to save. Why? So that we could become rich. So that God gave himself up so that we could have life. That he sacrificed his one and only son that we could receive forgiveness of sins. We could become God's very children and we could enjoy eternal life and abundant life. One person noted that no real, no gift can ever be given unless, or no true gift can ever be given unless in that gift someone gives a piece or a bit of himself. That's why a personal gift is always the, the highest kind of gift. And how much greater a gift than God who gave not just a part of himself, but he gave his very life. That's why at the end of all these passages, he says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift, that there's no way we could ever measure the value of the gift he gave us in Jesus. And so when we come to this idea of generosity, it's having a heart that's open toward God and hands that are open regarding our possessions. That we hold tightly to the Savior that we love, but yet we hold loosely to everything else that we have, knowing that it's all God's anyway. And that motivated by this love He has for us, flowing out through us because of what He's done for us, that we are generous toward others. And so the first step is to remember that constantly, the process that God has forgiven us, He's redeemed us, He's saved us. That we've been resurrected from the dead and yet and then in the midst of that he cleanses us sanctifies us and one day praise the lord will glorify when we're with him in heaven and so when we respond to god it's out of a joy out of a desire to show gratitude for what he's done toward us it's not an attempt to pay god back because we know in romans that you can't do that god can't be repaid but it's an expression of our love an expression of our devotion and it's gratitude that motivates our generosity it really shows if you think about it where our heart is there aren't my words but they're the words of jesus do you remember when he said where your treasure is there your heart may be also augustine wrote a little poem to remind us of these things where your treasure is Where your pleasure is, there your treasure is. Where your treasure is, there is your heart. And where your heart is, there is your happiness. And a heart that has been affected, changed, and transformed by grace will be a generous heart. And a generous heart, we know, when they give, they give cheerfully. That's the second thing I want you to see. We give cheerfully. How many of you have ever been to a reluctant birthday party? You ever been to one? 
Oh, great, it's your birthday again. We went down to Kroger and we got you a cake. And, well, because it's your birthday, we bought you some presents. So here you go. Wouldn't that be a great happy birthday? Wow. And we, you know, if we were not going to come, but we had to because mom told us. But here we are. I mean, what would a sorry birthday party would that be? You know, a reluctant birthday party. You know, we want people that are glad to be there to celebrate our party. Well, how about a compulsive Christmas? Anybody celebrated a compulsive Christmas lately? Merry Christmas. Here's your gift. I bought it because I had to. I'm only going to give you a gift because you gave me a gift. And sadly, if you think about it, in a lot of ways, sometimes Christmas can become that, you know, if we're not really careful. No, the reason those occasions are exciting is because they're, they're joyful, they're full of cheer, that we have birthday parties because it's an exciting time to celebrate someone's life. We celebrate Christmas because it's about the, the birth of Jesus, our, our Savior, and it's about family and it's about friends. And what is it? It's the joy of giving that matters. It's the joy of giving. It's not just some financial transaction. It's, it's a joyful process. In our, in our verses, in, in chapter 9, verse 7, Paul says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a, a cheerful giver. And think about, even in the midst of the most agonizing, torturous death that anyone could face, the Scriptures tell us that the Lord Jesus, for the joy set before Him, Endured the cross, scorning its shame. And why did he do that? To give us life. So there's no one that we can compare to in generosity. There's no one we can compare to in the sheer of giving than God. And he gives out of his abundant love and his glorious riches. And he gives to us constantly, abundantly, and extravagantly. Because he loves us. And he gives joyfully. And because God joyfully gives to us we can give to others. And in fact, God gives to us so we can give to others. But what does it mean to be a cheerful giver? It's funny, if you look at the word in, in Greek, it's, it sounds a lot like hilarious in Greek, but it means to do something happily. So I want you to picture for a second, you know, we've all seen the flannel graph stories of, um, of the woman, of the widow giving her mite, right? And, and you can probably picture that flannel graph in your, in your mind and you see this, huddled down older lady and extending her arm and dropping, you know, her, her penny in the offering plate. Now, while that is helpful to help us see that it's not about, you know, the, the size of the gift, it's about the heart. I really think probably the lady was probably much more joyful in her giving than that picture. I would imagine that it was a, a very praise filled, exciting time for her. Not because she was thinking, okay, I'm not going to be able to buy another ounce of flour because I'm dropping this penny in the plate. But no, because she realized I've been given much from God. And this is all I have, but I'm gladly giving it to you. And so we give because of the, the greatness of the joy that's in us. And it's, it's a barometer of our faith. You know, it's not reluctant. It's not like, well, you know, Man, I'm sorry that I have to part with this. And, you, you know, you have to yank twice because it's, you know, it's stuck in your, in your wallet. It's not under compulsion. You know, we're not forced to give because that would be taxation. But we're freed up to give. 
And we give out of a joyful heart. We gladly give. We freely give because God has given freely to us. And we express our gratitude, our joy in giving. And so it, and when we give joyfully, it acknowledges, first of all, that we know that everything is God's. But then it's this willing obedience from, from a grateful heart. So when we give, it's like joyfully going out and sowing seed. So imagine you're getting ready to plant your vegetable garden or you're going to have a bountiful flower garden this year. A beautiful bed of flowers and you go down to, to Home Depot and, and you look around and think, how many flowers am I going to buy to make a you know, really great booming garden? Would, would you buy just one flower and plant it in your flower bed? Well, if that's all the money you had, probably yes. But no, you see people and they buy you know, flats of flowers. And they plant many flowers because they want a bountiful, beautiful front yard of flowers. When people plant vegetable gardens, they don't just plant one plant, unless you're me and you plant one pepper plant or one tomato plant. But you plant many of those hoping that you will have an abundant harvest. What's the principle that's in the text that abundant sowing produces an abundant harvest? Another way is if you plant a lot or invest a lot, you get a lot. Now, I don't want your mind to go in the direction of thinking that you're going to receive material blessings simply because you you give. The more you give, the more you're going to get back because that's simply not what it says. But he says in verse 6, the point is this. If you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. And if you sow bountifully, you will reap bountifully. And a heart that's been warned by what God's done by His grace is going to respond and give joyfully and generously and a heart that begins to grow cold to the things of God will respond reluctantly or respond with ingratitude but a joyful and generous giver will experience a bountiful harvest of God's blessing while those that are reluctant and ungrateful will experience very little if any blessing but when a cheerful person gives it's a joyful offering of a sacrifice. First, the third thing I want you to see is that we give not only joyfully, but we give sacrificially. If you look in 2 Corinthians 8 verses, the first three verses, he's writing and he says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So he's lifting up to them this example of these Macedonian churches. And it says, for in a severe test of affliction, Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Interesting formula. It doesn't say in a time of abundant prosperity and easy living that their generosity was overflowing. No, it says the opposite. It says there was a severe test. There was affliction. There was extreme poverty. And what happened? There was an abundance of joy and there was a wealth of generosity. It says, They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. So in the midst of this severe test of affliction, this trial of poverty, these Macedonian churches gave generously. It's really an expiring example. Because the first thing that happens, I don't know about you, but the first thing that happens to me when... You know, there's a little bit of trouble is to panic and defend yourself and to protect yourself. Well, I've got to hang on to this because I might need it later. But yet these folks in the midst of. Down to the very depths of having nothing, poverty produced a wealth of 
generosity. How in the world could this be? If you look at verse 5, the phrase, they gave themselves first to the Lord, comes to mind. You see, the reason they were able to give generously of all they had is because they'd already given their self completely and totally to God. Romans 12, 1, they offered themselves as living sacrifices. They recognized that they belonged to God. They recognized everything they had belonged to God. And they responded not with just giving their lives, but of giving out of what they had. Men and women who very well could have been begging and pleading for help themselves were in fact begging to take part in God's work. They couldn't wait to give back to the one who had given them so much. So here's a principle. When we give ourselves first to God, what we have will eventually follow along. We'll learn to begin to give God the first fruits, not just the leftovers. We're going to learn that, yes, there may be a cost involved, but the cost that we have is always worth it. And it begins to help us to show our faith and our trust in God's provision. And so giving is a, a sacrifice, but it's a worthwhile sacrifice to a, a worthy God. Now, the fourth thing I want you to see is that we give in proportion to what we are given. Verse 3 of chapter 8, For they gave according to their means, important phrase, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So it says they gave according to their means. It means they gave what they were able to give. They determined what they were able to give, and then they gave that amount. But then they realized that, okay, we can give this, but we can also exceed that. And so it says they even went beyond that amount. Now, each person, each family has to determine for themselves what they want to give. It's a free choice. It's not under compulsion. It's up to you to decide. But it's a point in your life where your faith and your finances meet. Because here's a financial principle <laughs> that I can tell you. Um, sometimes numbers just don't work on paper. They don't work. I can tell you um, in, in 2012, when I left the bank and, and came you know, here at the church to be the associate pastor, and then not long after that, we were, we were thinking about Deborah staying home, first of all, in preparation for, for the adoption, and second, you know, because of, of health reasons. Um, I was a, I'm an Excel spreadsheet nut at figuring out stuff like this, and there was not an Excel spreadsheet that I could find that would work. I just had committed to the fact that it would not work for Deborah to stop working. But yet, when God told us to do it, she did it, and all those numbers that I so carefully calculated just got thrown out the window, and none of them, none of them worked. That, that whole system that couldn't work all of a sudden worked. Why? Because in obedience, we did what God intended us to do. And in the midst of that, we were still able to give to the things that we were so excited about. We were still able to give to our church. We were still able to give to two of our beloved friends that are working with Wycliffe for Bible translation. We were still able to give to a little boy named Ian for his education that we met from the African Children's Choir. We were still able to give to a little girl named Diane that we met through Compassion. We, we read about her story. We were still able to give to support a couple of radio stations around here. And we were still able to go on mission trips. Why? Because God is faithful. 
that we were able to do beyond what we could ever imagine because we set forth in our hearts that we were going to trust Him. And so it's of our own accord, it's each person's decision, and it's simple to see that those who have more have potential to give more. It's just basic. And the Lord, sometimes the Lord doesn't ask us to give what we don't have. So if you literally have nothing, then God's not going to say, well, you know, go to the bank, get a loan, and, you know, and give something. But we should all give something. Now, I know your minds have gone there, so I want to go there right now. Well, what about tithing? You know, if you grew up in a Baptist church, you hear, you know, that we're supposed to give 10% to the church. 10% to the church. I can say this. What we know from Scripture is this is the Old Testament pattern of giving. We see Abraham meet this mysterious guy, Melchizedek, in Genesis, even before the law of Moses was given. And it says that Abram offers up a tithe to Melchizedek. So we see it first introduced there. We see other men giving tithes. We read about it in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And this idea of a tenth of the produce of the earth would be given as first fruits to God. We're probably all familiar with Malachi 3, 10. Bring your tithe, full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my home and thereby put me to the test as the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And so we become familiar with that. Larry Burkett, a great um, financial um, educator who gave just a lot of godly wisdom about finances, described it this way. It's a voluntary external, material testimony of God's ownership of everything in our lives. It's interesting if you read through the, the Old Testament, you find that even though the tithe is, is listed out, it's required um, under Old Testament law, that there's not a, a penalty. You know, so many of the Old Testament laws, you know, do this, and if you don't do this, there's a harsh penalty. Well, there's not a penalty per se, but there is a, a consequence. Because what they, they found, it's in that Malachi 3.10 verse, is that if they didn't bring their full tithe in, that there wouldn't be enough food, that the window of heavens would somehow be closed, and they would find themselves not having more than they needed, but having less than they needed. So what about now? Some people will say it's New Testament. Um, you know, we, we're not under the Old Testament law. Um, I would tend to say that the things that in the New Testament, Jesus does not denounce. Jesus calls us to a higher level. Think about it. When Jesus says, you know, you have heard, do not, you know, commit, you know, murder. And then he goes on, he says, but I tell you that if you are angry, you've already committed it in your heart. And he goes on those things. I really think that what the Bible tells us that even though the the New Testament is basically silent about, silent about tithing except for a couple of, of instances and in referring back to, to Abram. But there's never a time that it is dismissed. There's never a time you look through the New Testament and Paul writes or Peter writes, you know, okay, you don't have to tithe anymore. But I think it's an expression of faith, a commitment to God. It acknowledges again that everything belongs to him. That we're just the guys that get to be the managers of it. And it's faith and trust that God will provide. Now, most of you probably heard the name Billy Graham. You'd probably respect his opinion. And, you know, he's approaching, very, he's approaching his hundredth 
birthday. And listen to what Billy Graham said about this. Somebody, you know, because they used to have the Ask Billy Graham columns, and this is what Billy Graham said. We have found in about, you know, do I have to tithe? And this is what Billy Graham responded. We have found in our own home, as have thousands of others, that God's blessing upon the nine-tenths when we tithe helps it to go farther than the ten-tenths without His blessing. So should I tithe? Ultimately, it's between you and God. For some people, 10% might be a good goal. It might be somewhere where you're thinking, okay, you know, I'm, I'm rock bottom at zero or I'm at 1%. It might be something to, to work toward. For some of us, 10%, you know, is just the starting part. And God is, is saying, you know, I need you to increase that generosity. But always, always we have to remember whether it's 10% or 90%, 100% of it goes, it belongs to God. A man named Henry Crowell grew up in the era of D.L. Moody's preaching. He had tuberculosis. He got it as a boy. And one day after he heard D.L. Moody preach, he just prayed to God, God, I can't be a preacher, but I can be a good businessman. God, if you let me make money, I'll use it for your service. He started his own company, Quaker Oats, and consistently gave between 60 and 70% of his income to the Lord's work. Why? Because a heart transformed by the gospel will give generously, gladly, and sacrificially to the Lord's work. You see, when we give to church, our church, when we give to missionaries around the world, when we give to orphans or someone in need, we're given to God's kingdom work. God is just using you or I or whoever to be a conduit of blessing, to transfer assets from one place to another place in His kingdom. And God uses us to, to give to His kingdom work. And that giving always pays eternal Dividend. Some of you may be a little bit nervous because of what do, you, what do you want to call it? You know, a market correction or a stock market crash. But there's been some some volatility in the stock market, and some people wonder is that the best place to to keep my money? But I tell you, the best investment plan on earth is to invest in what God is doing in His work around the world. It blesses us. It meets the needs of other people, and it it brings glory to God. If you think about it just in the context of our, of our church at Cross Timber, our partnership in ministry, our kingdom service, you know, we, we support the work here at the church. We support the Next Step Women's Center who provides pregnancy tests and counseling to try to, to help unwed mothers keep their babies or to provide a safe place for them. We support Harvest House, which helps provide for material needs of people in the community. We support IMB missionaries all around the world, some that we know by name, some that we know by personal, we know on a personal basis. And we support places like Honduras with its, its Casa Cielo and, and orphans and, and the work that there. It's done there in many other places. 
in verse 12 of chapter 9, he says, The ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So notice he calls giving ministry of this service. Giving is a ministry. Some of us, some of you have never been overseas on a mission trip. But yet your giving has allowed someone to go. So in a sense, you're a partner in that mission trip. We may never be able to go into some of those closed countries where it's dangerous, even deadly, to share the good news of Jesus. But our giving goes and supports those that are there. And so this giving that we do, it's an act of of service that we make a material sacrifice that's an act of worship that ministers to other people in need and it's a way of serving others. And the enrichment, the building up, it's not only for the receiver, but it's also for the giver. Because a cheerful giver will always receive rewards that you can't measure in dollars. The act of helping to meet needs. And, and in the end, it results in thanksgiving to God. Now, how could we be involved in God's kingdom work? I think the New Testament standard is you know, that our giving primarily is through um, your local church. It's where you, you attend, what you're a part of. And then after that responsibility, then we support other kingdom advancing efforts. We look around and say, where is God working and how can I be in part of that? And then also we have, an open, we have open eyes and, and open hands to help meet the needs of, of others. That we look around and say, you know, how can I help meet the needs of others? How can I meet the needs of people around the world? And how can I support my church? Because the power of the gospel produces glad and generous hearts that give to God's kingdom work. So why? So more people can hear the gospel. So the church can minister and, and operate, and that God will be glorified, not just here, but in all the earth. I'm about done, but I want to give you some, a few practical principles. And if you flip over a few pages, back, 1 Corinthians 16, you know, Paul sure did spend a lot of time helping the Corinthians understand how they ought to uh, manage their, their giving and their finances in the church. But in 1 Corinthians 16, we're just going to read the first two verses there. He says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. Again, he lifts up another example. He says, okay, we've had the Macedonians. Now here's the Galatians. I'm going to, what they did, I need you to do also. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. So the three things, give regularly. The phrase there on the first day of the week. By this time, that became Sunday. It was the Lord's Day. It was the day they gathered together for worship. The principle behind that is we should give regularly or with a regular pattern, whether that's a weekly basis. That works for some people depending on pay. Sometimes it works better on a monthly basis, but give regularly. Plan it out. The next thing is to give consistently. Each of you is to put something aside and store it up. 
Now, there's no exclusions here. He says each of you, so that's everybody present, is to put something aside and store it up. I would go a little further here and tell you that the best practice to do is to set it aside first. Decide what you're going to give and set it aside first. The reason being is even though you have good intentions, if you don't set it aside aside first, many times when it comes down to the time when you're actually going to give, if you haven't set it aside first, it may not be there. And when you want to give $6 trillion to pay off the debt, the debt, all you have is the 1983 Oldsmobile to give. So set it aside consistently along the way. Set it aside first. And then the third thing is to give according to your financial ability. Now I say this because it says there in the verse, as he may prosper. Now I'll say two things about that. The first thing is, is you're There's never a bad time to start giving. Start somewhere. But I think the other end of the spectrum is where we need to really seriously look. As he may prosper. Because increased income is an increased capacity for us to to give. Salary raise bonus check, income tax return. You know, we, we look toward all those things. You know, well, it needs to be a new refrigerator because our door is about to, you know, fall off. We need to paint our house. We need to do these things. Those things are all important. But if we look first and say, God, what do you want me to do? And God says, Give. God says go so somebody can give. And we do that first and we trust God to take care of the other things in our lives. So we give regularly, consistently, and according to our ability. I want to close with a poem and then I'm going to pray. I'm actually, it's lyrics to a song. Lord, you love the cheerful giver who with open hand, open heart and hand blesses freely as a river that refreshes all the land. Grant us then the grace of giving with a spirit large and true that our life and all our living we may consecrate to you. Lord God, we thank you for this morning and we do thank you, God, for the inexpressible gift. We thank you that because you have given freely, generously, joyfully to us that we should give in turn back to you. God, we pray that you would help us to, to learn to be cheerful, joyful, generous givers that you would help us to loose the, the grip of materialism in our lives. You would help us to, to place our trust not in our checkbook balance, but in the God of all creation. And God, you would give us the joy of partnering with others in your work here locally and literally around the world. God, we thank you that we can be generous givers because you gave to us first. And that's the good news of the gospel. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.